0: Uh, I want to thank, uh, I think, Ivan and Amelia for having worked so hard to get me involved in this program. Uh, in fact, I was supposed to speak there live, but I had a prior commitment uh, because of which I could not uh, come. Uh, and certainly I feel sorry about that. In any case, um, this is a special occasion And a special paper. Uh, Why is it a special occasion? Because one, uh, we're talking about Freud's uh, uh, The Unconscious Paper uh, which was written in 1915 and therefore it is the hundredth year uh, anniversary of writing that paper. In that way this is a special occasion. Secondly, uh, you know, Yom Kippur has just passed, and this particular Yom Kippur uh, was in uh, the third week of September, which is and very close to the Yom Kippur on which uh, Freud uh, died. And therefore, uh, this event is also solemn because of its closeness to Freud's death anniversary. And thirdly, because this paper is very special, uh, insofar as if we divide, Freud's entire corpus of work into four categories. One about the cultural uh, speculations, whether they are about war or creativity or religion or civilization. Second, about uh, the technique of treatment, transference, resistance, uh, counter-transference, repeating, remembering, and so on. Uh, third, about the development of personality, the uh, fundamental motivations of mind, uh, development of personality, psychopathology, etc., and fourth, uh, metapsychology. How does the mind actually work? Uh, primary process, secondary process, uh, pleasure principle, unpleasure principle, introjection, projection, uh, uh, conscious, unconscious, preconscious parts of the mind, word representation, thing representations, etc., etc. The entire metapsychology. I believe that of metapsychology is the most powerful, the most significant, uh, and most universally applicable and everlasting contribution of Freud. We may or may not uh, agree with some of his cultural speculations or his technical recommendations or his personality development theories, but all psychoanalysts, ultimately all psychoanalysts, agree that metapsychology is where Freud's work is of supreme Uh, and lasting importance. In that category is this paper called The Unconscious, and therefore this paper is of prime importance. Now, uh, before we go to uh, the nature of this paper, and I'll say a few things uh, about it, uh, let me just say something very basic, which the sophisticated audience most likely already knows. But, you know, I teach medical students in uh, Jefferson Medical School in Philadelphia, I teach uh, psychiatry residents here. And they are kids. They are like beginning to understand these kinds of things. So we have to tell them how one can encounter the unconscious. Now the fact is, the unconscious by its definition is not visible. It's not directly uh, uh, evident and manifest. Mm -hmm. It is to be discerned. Or even better, I think, uh, it is to be inferred. I think inferred is a better word. And I From reading this paper, from reading other psychonetic material, and from clinical experience, I've come to conclude that essentially there are six different pathways to discerning or inferring the unconscious mental activity. The first one is dreams, so that a person goes to sleep and sees things that he never consciously intended to, never consciously even thought He can see people belonging to different eras in different locations in one place and so on and so forth. Something that has never consciously happened, never consciously experienced, never consciously intended, yet his mind produces that. So that's one evidence of the unconscious mind. Second evidence uh, that I tell uh, kids is post-hypnotic suggestion. That is, we hypnotize people, we can tell them to do something, they wake up and they can do that action without knowing why they are doing it. That's another evidence that there's a part of the mind which is out of our awareness, which governs our behavior. Then, besides these two, dreams and hypnotic suggestion, there is the issue of praxis, unintended actions, slips of tongue, slips of pen, uh, forgetting things, uh, mispronouncing things, mixing up two words, calling somebody by somebody else's name, and so on and so forth. This also reveals a part of mind governing human behavior which is out of awareness. So, dreams, one, post-hypnotic suggestion, two, uh, parapraxis, three. Then, major omissions from a narrative. Somebody is describing, somebody is telling that they're buying a house, and they go in great detail about the house. Day after day, week after week, they talk about that house, but suddenly you notice that they have never mentioned as to how much Mm -hmm. does the house cost. That makes one wonder, what is this force, what is the aspect of the mind which has pulled this information and made it disappear from the narrative? So major omissions also hint at the unconscious mental activity. Then there are two others, negation, which is also an important paper by Freud, and that is something that has been pushed outside of consciousness, tries to come out, but is permitted to come out only in its inverted form. So the person says, look, I'm not being competitive with you. Meaning that his wish to be competitive has been driven out of his mind and awareness, yet it's so strong that it wishes to come out, but is permitted to come out by saying, I'm not being competitive. Or you ask somebody, who do you think has stole your wallet? And the person says, the last person who comes to my mind is my sister. No, that's not the last person. Last person will come to your mind if you rent an apartment in Brooklyn, become a solitary person, write down every single human being's name for the next three weeks. And then you squeeze your brain and out of your neuron, one last name drops up. After three and a half weeks, after you have made a list of 32,000 people that you <laughs> know, that will be the last person. This person, your sister was actually on top of your mind. But because you don't want to acknowledge it, you add the word, the last person. So this is another evidence. Finally, the uh, uh, evidence of unconscious is what we call derivative phenomena or the return of the repressed. That is, we push something uh, out of our awareness, it goes under the repressive barrier, but it finds aspects in reality that then become tantamount to an equivalent to them and therefore be, carry a powerful emotional valence. For example, a person says, I'm afraid of dogs. Is he afraid of dogs? Yes, of course he's afraid of dogs. But the question is, what else is he afraid of? And what has the dog come to stand for? And such. So these are the ways we discern the unconscious. Through parapraxis, through dreams, through post-hypnotic suggestion, through omission, through negation and through derivatives. Mm-hmm. So that is what we are dealing with. Now, in you know, I, along with my co- Montreal-based colleague, now she's in moved to Toronto, Mary Kay O'Neill, uh, uh, I uh, edited a book uh, 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 on the contemporary Freud series Uh, that Joseph Sandler had started, which my able assistant, Jan, put it together with hard work and such. And now it's in print, you will see. Uh, Now, in this book, I wrote the introduction to, and they're very, very good papers, some remarkable papers uh, in the book uh, by Kenneth Wright, by Stefano Bullignini, uh, some very, very fine papers uh, in this book. But the I tried to distill some 12 major points, major propositions that are contained in Freud's paper. Some, I said, have become so deeply accepted that they are canonized, such as that the unconscious and repressed is not the same thing. Now we know that. Second, that uh, uh, the, the unconscious has different rules of functioning than the conscious Mind. So those kinds of things have become canonized, and they're completely fully accepted in psychoanalysis. Then there's a group of propositions in this paper, which uh, uh, has to do with uh, ideas that have been accepted, but been modified and in fact embellished, such as that the conscious mind is made of thing and word representations, and the unconscious mind is only made of thing representations such as that uh, there's something like unconscious uh, uh, problem solving, uh, so that uh, uh, the unconscious mind also works at problems and with synthetic function. Uh, So these are things that have been accepted, but now enlarged in a big way. Then there's a group of ideas which have been sort of rejected, such as uh, that uh, there are no unconscious affects, that, I think, is now uh, not considered valid. Um, uh, or that all mental events, especially all unconscious mental events, are products of uh, energy shifts in the mind. That, I think, we have, by and large, walked away from. So there's a group of ideas which are canonized. There's a group of ideas which are accepted but embellished. There's a group of ideas that are sort of shelved away or rejected. And then there's a group of ideas which I don't think psychoanalysis has fully and carefully recognized. And two ideas in that last category are that sometimes the characteristics and operational methods of the system unconscious and the operational uh, rules of the system uh, conscious can be reversed. So the the conscious can begin functioning as the unconscious and the unconscious as the conscious. Now, that is an idea that I don't think has been fully Mm -hmm. understood and fully elaborated upon, as well as another idea that under certain circumstances, perfect mental functioning is also obtainable. Now, obviously, there's not enough time for us to go into all these 12 and 13 things. So from these, I've selected three points to focus upon. First point is about metapsychology. Second point is about the unconscious not being constructed only of the repressed material. And third is about the reversal of the characteristics of conscious and unconscious mind under certain circumstances. So let me uh, begin by uh, the metapsychology. In this paper, Freud proposes the term metapsychology. And he says that mental phenomena cannot just be seen at one level of abstraction or from only one vantage point, that they have to be seen from multiple vantage points and deconstructed in their elemental characteristics from various sides and various points of views. And he proposes three point of views in this paper. One point of view is what he calls the uh, topographic perspective. The second, what he calls the dynamic perspective. And the third, what he calls the economic perspective. Now, the topographic perspective means that in every mental phenomena or mental phenomena are arranged in such order that some aspect of them is completely in the conscious awareness. Some aspect of them or some mental phenomena are Not in conscious awareness, but can be readily brought into conscious awareness, such as, for example, your mother's first name, such as your postal address, such as your neighbor's uh, uh, name. These things are in your mind, but they're not in the forefront of your mind. But they can be readily brought to your mind. You know, uh, these things are pre-conscious. The ones that are in your mind, consciously, right now available, are they conscious? The one that can be brought into consciousness are pre-conscious, and then one cannot be brought into consciousness, but can only be inferred are the unconscious. Now, this perspective is of profound significance. So when a person comes and says, I'm afraid of dogs, I'm afraid of heights, I can't fly in a plane, or I don't know why I think my hands are dirty while I have washed them, but I feel like washing them again. The topographic perspective suggests, yes, this person is afraid of dogs. Yes, this person is afraid of heights or of flying. Yes, this person is riddled with the doubt, uh, ridden with the doubt that his hands are dirty. But this is not enough for us. That's the conscious part. What is the pre-conscious and what is the unconscious uh, constituents of this idea? What are the accompaniments, which are unconscious accompaniments? What are the accompaniments, which are the pre-conscious accompaniments? What does the person who is afraid of dog is also afraid of? And so on and so forth. What does the patient know? And what does the patient can know? And what uh, uh, does the patient does not know? So this is the topographic perspective. The second perspective that Freud says of metapsychology is what he called the, uh, the uh, dynamic perspective, which means that in every phenomena, uh, psychological phenomena, behavior, fantasy, dream, parapraxis, symptom, uh, character trait, in every psychological phenomena, we have a confluence of forces. These forces are of instincts and of drives these forces are of uh, uh, phylogenetic imperatives of safety. These forces of are of are internalized morality. These forces are of uh, perceptions of reality and uh, uh, pragmatism and so on and so forth. But every human behavior, every human thought, every human fantasy, every human character trait is made up of multiple forces interacting with each other. Now, this idea, of course, was further developed in the idea, uh, I think, uh, in 1936, the famous paper by Robert Welder uh, of Principle of Multiple Function. By the way, Robert Welder worked in this medical school where I'm sitting and where this thing is being recorded, in Jefferson Medical College. You know, he was originally a physicist from Vienna who became a psychoanalyst, but later he migrated to Philadelphia and worked in this medical school in Jefferson. Uh, we are very proud of him. Now, uh, Welder, and then Charles Brenner in New York with his emphasis upon compromise formation and such. So this was the second perspective, dynamic perspective and topographic perspective. The third perspective, Freud says, in uh, metapsychology, is the economic perspective. Now, while Freud at that time was using kind of a hydraulic model, an energetic model of mental energy and quantitative forces, etc. And gradually psychoanalysis has moved away from it. Uh, and we don't even know why. I mean, is it because uh, the relational and object relational emphasis and the hermeneutic emphasis and social constructivist emphasis moved us from a a physiologic model of the mind? Is it because we became sort of intellectually lazy? Uh, I don't really know, but we moved away from it. Nonetheless, we have not completely moved away from economic perspective because after all when we are seeing a patient when we are doing analysis we are always assessing something is too much, something is too little something is too soon, something is too late, something is an overreaction something is an underreaction something is uh, over emotionalized something is uh, intellectualized too much intellect, too much emotion too soon, too quick too little, too much these kinds of assessments we are always making. So I think economic perspective is with us, though in a more subjective and sublime way than in a hard uh, physicist model way. Now, this metapsychology, of course, was Freud's, but later on in 1960, in a uh, very important paper by David Rappaport, the structure of psychoanalytic theory, two more perspectives were added. One is genetic perspective, that is, what is today but how is today related to yesterday? The man who's afraid of dogs, how did this fear start? What was the original fear? What was the original dog? Why was that dog scary? When did this happen? So that what is today got to do with yesterday? That's an important perspective. And then finally, an adaptive perspective. That is that in each human behavior, even the maladaptive behavior, there is an attempt by the human mind to find the least problematic solution, and the most adaptive and most salutary solution. So this is a very important aspect of this paper, the metapsychological model of the mind. The second important aspect of this paper that I want to address was the aspect that the repressed and the unconscious are not uh, uh, synonymous, meaning all the repressed is certainly unconscious, but all, all that is unconscious is not repressed. The unconscious consists of many, many other things besides the repressed. In Freud's own paper, two important constituents are listed. One is the instinctual representatives. And that, uh, of course, in the Kleinian model, the movement uh, of the instincts and their metaphorical descriptions uh, via fantasy, PH fantasy, which differs from fantasy F, which is uh, the ego-psychological discursive Compromise formation, cognitive structure, as against the metaphorical movement of the instincts, which is a characteristic of the unconscious and elaborated more in mrs. Klein's work. Another component of the uh, uh, the unconscious that Freud talks about is the material derived from primal repression or uh, what we would today call the material that uh, arose in the mind before uh, we acquired a language, and hence it was not recorded in language. And since it cannot be remembered in the language, it cannot also be forgotten. So this is what uh, Alvin Frank calls the unrememberable and the unforgettable. This is the pre-verbal affects, pre-verbal emotions, pre-verbal ideas, even if we can call them ideas. You know, uh, uh, bolus is unthought known. That is what another component And then uh, primal fantasies uh, that Freud talks about, phylogenetically transmitted expectations of mother, father, breast, mouth, uh, uh, seduction, and so on and so forth. Here, of course, Freud is uh, also uh, touching upon which aspect Jung carried on further and elaborated in a different direction. But besides that of course then we have ego functions that are unconscious defensive functions but not only defensive functions even synthetic functions of the ego can be unconscious which produce later on unconscious problem solving and uh, aspects of super ego uh, and moral functioning can be unconscious i think in the ego in the id at one place freud says how uh, everyone is more immoral than they admit and more moral than they know, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, uh, indicates about the unconscious uh, superego functioning. So this is the second important point that I wanted to emphasize, one about metapsychology, one about <coughs> the greater uh, 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 compass and greater scope uh, of uh, uh, the system unconscious than merely the repressed material. Then, finally, I want to say uh, uh, about this curious point that Freud makes that sometimes the characteristics and the rules and operations of the system unconscious can come to reside in the system conscious and vice versa. Now, where does this happen? Let's think about it. Uh, This comment is in passing in the paper, but it's an important comment, I think, because it touches upon certain areas that we have, I think, uh, to think and sort out more. One area is uh, uh, when the psychotic material is uh, flooding uh, the ego. A person is totally now in a delirious psychosis. At that time, considerations of logic, considerations of secondary process, contradiction, uh, uh, considerations of contradiction and exclusion, uh, even uh, uh, expression via word representation can all disappear from the conscious mind. A person who thinks, I am as generous, as kind and as old uh, uh, and as stable as this old tree in my backyard. Now the psychotic person doesn't talk like this. He can now act like a tree. And now he doesn't move and he spreads his hands and he's standing someplace because he is the tree. So now what was the thing, a word representation has now transformed into a thing representation. And now the rule of the unconscious has come to reside in the rule of the conscious. So that's one example. Conversely, if we look at Jacob Arlo's paper on the unconscious Mm -hmm. fantasy, now the driving unconscious fantasies or Joe Slab's schemata, all these things I think have very organized structures and detailed discursive stories which then can become part of the repressed. And... The unconscious repressed fantasy can continue to influence behavior via derivatives. Nonetheless, it is contained in the system unconscious as a repressed material, but in the system unconscious with all the dynamic characteristics and formal and operational characteristics of the conscious mind. So the traffic goes both ways. The unconscious can come out in the conscious and the conscious can go and be repressed in the unconscious. Then there are transitional states and bridging states, which I think are very, very important and very interesting. And that is uh, uh, the state of uh, transference neurosis, or uh, where a certain amount of therapeutic alliance is maintained and yet the transference illusion is also maintained simultaneously. The state of play, and even bigger, the state of metaphor and poetry. Uh, I think when. The Canadian uh, Ceylonese-Dutch poet says, Michael Undadji says, that all of us have dreamt of finding that lost dog. Now the question is, is this about a dog really? Uh, Maybe, maybe it is about a dog, but maybe it is about... Uh, lost other objects or maybe it is just about the inherent inherent nature of development in which loss and gain is intrinsically woven and all of us have to go through at each step of life uh, uh, handling losses and uh, celebrating gains and mourning losses. So listen to this again. All of us have dreamt of finding that lost dog and I think that this reminds me of course of the paper and of Freud's paper uh, identification with the lost object, but what has happened in this line, or Borges' line, that uh, uh, there's a mirror that has seen my face for the last time, or Pablo Neruda's line, what is sadder than a train stopped in rain. In all these poetic structures, we have characteristics of the unconscious in the conscious making friends with each other, and trying to play with each other. And therefore, the conscious, with a wink, knows that this unconscious material, and the unconscious knows that it is now in the realm of the conscious. And it is in this realm of metaphor, creativity, imagination, poetry, uh, and play, Uh, that a a lot of creativity lies and a lot of uh, psychoanalytic work lies. And I think that Freud's pointing this out is an extremely important and uh, relatively ignored aspect of this paper, and that is the traffic and overlap and reversals between uh, conscious and unconscious mental functioning. Through these three ideas and the remaining other nine or ten that I did not talk, Freud opened us a new Uh, uh, realm of investigation to which poets and philosophers had known, had hinted about, but not in such deeply organized, such deeply scientific, such deeply theoretical way. And he pointed to us that the brave new world that Huxley was at that time coming up with and pointing towards, the brave new world was not only, is not only, lies outside of us, but there is a brave new world or perhaps a brave old world that lies inside of us that requires equal amount of courage to encounter and promises equal amount of discovery. Thank you very much.
1: He, he could have been in the room in the morning, couldn't he? Really, so, um, <coughs> there's a lot to, to discuss, and we'll we'll leave it till after the second talk, which is you, you don't want the PowerPoint, you don't want no, the, no, the, no, no, like which is um, <coughs> Venushka Gross, who will be responding partly to Salmon's paper and, and partly. Uh, Bringing out some other issues about the unconscious as well, and Anushka, um, you've got her bio on, mercifully short bio on your <laughs> your uh, paper, and um, and I'll just hand over to you. Thank uh,
2: you. Can you just yeah. That's, uh, That's yeah. you. That's you. I I sound loud. Is it oh, already? Okay. <laughs> Hold on already? No,
1: okay. No,
2: Thank you. Oh, so you can hear me. Oh, I sound very loud. Yeah, I noticed during that one that I was the only person so far who's going to speak with notes. I'm like, oh, what does it mean? But um, I, I came to the conclusion that I must be the speaker so far who trusts their unconscious the least. <laughs> I've got this here to save me. Um, yeah, so I wanted to speak about language and the unconscious. Um, and some really small theoretical differences that might look a bit like nitpicking, but maybe they're the sorts of things that have serious repercussions in clinical work. Um, so I wanted to very loosely, again, I mean, has spoken about it a bit already, so I'll be covering some of the same stuff, but maybe from a different angle, but loosely kind of go through the um, Lacanian take on the Freudian unconscious Um and the, the Lacanian take summed up in this famous phrase, the unconscious is structured like a language, around which there's been quite a lot of disagreement. Um, and maybe some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with Andre Green, but he's this very interesting figure in psychoanalysis because, well, he's, he's a very smart guy, but he's one of the only people who, in Paris, kind of in the 50s, who moved <laughs> between the two groups, the IPA group and the Lacanian group. And um, that's... Uh, And ultimately... I think this was an easy thing to do. Ultimately, he fell out with Lacan, <laughs> so he ended up very much aligned with with the other side. Um, and at that point, he, he kind of ultimately came to the conclusion that Lacan was wrong about language and the unconscious because of what Freud says in in this famous 1915 paper on the unconscious about words and things. So this this stuff that that Salman's been speaking about, um, and about how the qualitative difference between a conscious idea and an unconscious one is that repression into it drops the link between thing presentations and word presentations. So, so it doesn't allow the unconscious. Um, it doesn't allow the unconscious thing presentations access to words, so that an idea becomes unsayable and is somehow outside language. So I wanted to talk about that in relation to this famous phrase, the unconscious is structured like a language. So in that phrase, is Lacan diverging from Freud? Is he just wrong? <laughs> Which is what Andre Green says. He says, well, look, Freud says here that, you know, the, the, the stuff, the thing presentations in the unconscious don't have access to words. Therefore, Lacan's phrase is nonsensical. Um, Is Lacan being heretical? Is he just um, discounting what Freud says? Or is it just a matter of looking at what Lacan actually said a bit more closely? Because maybe it doesn't diverge that much from Freud's idea. But that, of course, is all to assume that Freud's idea is good. So, And I don't know if you have something to say about that but yeah there's that's the sort of uh, overarching question so i'll speak a bit about freud first and this last part of his paper where he talks about schizophrenia and it is a bit of a i don't know what to call it a knot of nerdiness but if i can sort of unpick the knot a bit then i hope it opens out onto proper questions about you know life and and how to live it um So in Freud's paper on the unconscious, there's this section on schizophrenia and displacements due to repression. And he says, you see something really weird happening in schizophrenia, and he gives these two examples. So one is this patient of his who can't stop squeezing the blackheads on his nose, um, and he fidgets with his skin, and he seems to get real kind of buzz out of these eruptions of pus. So there seems to be something kind of masturbatory about the activity activity. Um, And and the guy gets very upset by the idea that he's ruined his skin by scarring it, and that after squeezing the the blackhead, he's left with a hole in his face. So he sees these holes, he makes a, a link between these holes and sees them as vaginas, so... Um, The interpretation he comes up with is that his masturbatory activity leaves him castrated with a hole instead of a penis. And Freud says that a neurotic person would be really, really unlikely to do that, to see this tiny little hole in the nose as a symbol for a vagina. He says it it just isn't similar enough. It wouldn't it wouldn't do the job. Plus, the fact that there are lots of holes in in the skin of the nose makes them a kind of even less obvious choice. It's just a kind of rubbish analogy. Um, So he says, while a neurotic might see kind of every medium-sized cavity as an orifice, they'd be unlikely to view a kind of multitude of tiny holes in the same way. So it's just the fact that both things can be described using the word whole that, that makes this slippage possible for the patient. And and the same goes for another patient of Freud's who sees the little gaps in the knitting of his socks as vaginas, um, and he's really disturbed by the idea of wanting to unravel his own socks. <laughs> so again, it's, it's the word whole that's important in making the connection. So, so, um, you know, in schizophrenia, it appears, therefore, that, that words might come to have a predominance over things. Um, so, object, um, uh, yeah, and Freud talks about, which is different to kind of, Temporary uh, diagnostic ideas about schizophrenia, but he speaks about schizophrenia as a narcissistic disorder. So object cathexes or investments in objects are given up and the ego is hyper cathected, which leads to this terrifying loss of reality that you see in psychosis. So, so the person might become, you know, the one, the chosen one, or they might feel they have to save the world or that government or aliens are watching them. But Freud says that, that while these external object cathexes are given up, word cathexes aren't, so words might still be invested with an absolute overload of excitement while appearing to be quite kind of freestanding and cut loose from the things that they supposedly represent. And that's, I mean, I know a lot of you are clinicians, and that's, I think, I hope, I don't know you agree, but that's something that you really, really do hear psychotic people speak about. Um, So that leads Freud to say then that word presentations and thing presentations aren't the same, but can be bound together in a secondary operation. And that's where he concludes something about the difference between a conscious and an unconscious presentation. So the unconscious contains what he calls the first and true object cathexes, which exist in the unconscious as thing presentations. And the first kind of big excitements are, are all registered there, you know, fancying your mum, whatever it is. That, that's all happening there. Um, and the system preconscious comes about as as things become linked with words, they start to be describable or nameable. Um, and so he talks about thing presentations being hyper becoming even more exciting through being linked with word presentations. So the acquisition of language is something really exciting. It's not just something you have to do, something that's imposed on you, but the reason you put yourself through it, that you do this really difficult thing, is, is because you get a massive kick out of it. There are kind of huge rewards. So, um, because through the acquisition of language, you can start to organise relations, manage absences and begin to have some kind of effect on the world. So you get a little bit of control or at least a, a semblance of it. But at the same time, as you're getting that kind of excellent set of rewards, you um, also learn that lots of things have to be given up. So you generally, you know, at that stage, you're becoming socialised and, and realistic, supposedly, or you're not. But um, If you're not, then that's that's another matter that's going to, you know, make interesting things happen later. Um, So becoming socialised involves repression. You have to limit your unacceptable impulses, and that's a message that you're constantly receiving as as you grow up. So that, yeah, I don't know if all of that is a kind of hyper-dense idea, but um, at least Salmon's been speaking about it too. So so maybe it's, I don't know, helps it hang together. But... um, so the preconscious system then is linked with the development of language and with prohibition. So the key difference for Freud at that stage between an unconscious presentation and a pre conscious one is to do with whether or not the cathexis is representable in words. And so he explains that what repression d- denies to the object cathexis is the translation into words or more particularly words which remain attached to the object so unless you express it directly then then it doesn't count so repression makes an idea unsayable but even if you were given the words by somebody else like maybe a very clever psychoanalyst who who knows you know thinks they know all about People's unconsciouses. Then the words still wouldn't necessarily be attached to the object. They'd be cut loose from it, even if they were exactly the right words. So if you're in your, you know, consulting room and somebody comes in for a first session and they tell you that, you know, that they're a shoe fetishist or whatever, and you go, oh, a shoe fetishist, good, so you must have a really kind of passionate, unconscious interest in your mum's genitals. <laughs> if, if you kind of start off with that, the, the, the unconscious presentations and the words that you're giving them might seem to be completely incommensurate, and you might do, you know, three, five, ten years of analysis with that person, and ten years later, they might say exactly that thing to you. But if you just go straight in with naming it, blind and bluntly at the beginning, that there's gonna be no match, um, at all, or the match is gonna be negated so heartily that there's gonna to appear to be no match. In three. Well, as, as Salman was saying, negation is, is a sort of very important thing. So the more the patient, the more true it was, the more the patient might be inclined to say no to it, you'll never see them again, so what was the point in that? Um so that's why you wouldn't generally make a big interpretation at the beginning of a treatment, exactly as Freud says in his papers on technique, because it doesn't matter how correct it is, you won't be helping the person in any way at all. Um... Which yeah, I don't know. Opens up this bigger question, which I know um, Salmon talks about, I think, in the introduction to his book on the unconscious. But this this question of whether to give a patient words in the treatment and and how that can go, and it's something that's very much discussed in analytic literature. If somebody's got something that they're not saying, they don't know how to say. You're going to help them to say it, and and how would you help them? Would you try to name it for them or or not? Or can you bear to just sit there and watch them not saying it? And how long can that go? one for it, et cetera. Um. So it seems to be one of those awful uh, questions around analytic tact, which is totally unscientific, abominable, how, how can you even begin to speak about it? So it's something that maybe you can try sometimes, but with the proviso that, that you'd need to have kind of serious reservations for yourself about the status of the words that you provide. Because if you say, oh, you know, what you seem to be experiencing is this, are you um, naming the patient's, you know, psychic truth or are you obscuring it? Um, And so the person might be very grateful for the words you give them but partly because they might actually protect them from a painful idea. And just because they accept your words and say, oh, yeah, that's exactly right, it doesn't mean you know, they're the right words, the true words, the good words. They might sometimes be soothing, they might sometimes make further words possible or keep something at bay, all of which might sometimes help a person or be clinically useful, but that's not at all the same thing as kind of un-problem- unproblematically providing the analysant with their own lost words. So to go back to this famous quote, um, I'll expand it. But it's so long and rambling, it's practically unbearable. So I've condensed it down a little bit, but it still kept some of the rambliness, because I think the rambliness is the thing that helps it to make sense in the end. But he says, the unconscious is structured like a language. And I say like so as not to say, and I come back to this all the time, that the unconscious is structured by a language. So you very often hear this little bit of the quote all by itself, the unconscious is structured like a language. But here Lacan makes a big point of saying that that doesn't mean that language imposes its rules on the unconscious or that language creates the unconscious in its own image or whatever other misunderstandings you might be able to pull out of that phrase. So if it doesn't mean that, what else might it mean? And especially in relation to Freud's idea that what keeps a thing unconscious is the fact of it's being prevented from attaching itself to a word presentation. So you'll sometimes read, I don't know, well, for example, on the super reliable Wikipedia, that after Freud, Jung and Lacan came up with very different ways of conceiving the unconscious. So... According to Wikipedia, Jung developed the notion of the collective unconscious, which has been honed in man over generations, etc., 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 and everyone needs to kind of tap into it in order to feel a bit better, a bit more in sync with themselves or with the world. But then, on the other hand, according to, to Wikipedia, Lacan came up with the notion of the linguistic unconscious, which is supposedly totally different to Freud's idea. But then you'd have to ask which of Freud's ideas because the Lacanian idea isn't anything like this sort of mythical id creature of late Freud but it seems to be much more like the unconscious from Freud's first apology from this famous 1915 essay. But that similarity maybe becomes harder to spot when, when you say, oh, the contents of the Freudian unconscious are barred from attaching themselves to word presentations. The Lacanian unconscious is structured like a language. Doesn't it follow then that they're radically different? But not at all, if if you take seriously the phrasing, like a language. So in the Freudian unconscious, you have certain phenomena object cathexes that need to be dealt with you know unpleasant uh, excitements around people who you wish didn't excite you or whatever that's going to be um, but if they're deemed too unacceptable to be allowed into consciousness then they need to transform themselves somehow so that the impulse can hope to achieve some sort of satisfaction so the unconscious scouts around for a substitute for the object something with similar features so you know in the case of little hans the, the father's big moustache becomes a horse's noseband and suddenly Hans is terrified of horses. So ideas or objects are interchangeable like words. They take on meanings in relation to other words or presentations, but there's nothing that says that they necessarily have to mean that. So as the structuralists pointed out, words only take on significance as part of a system and according to psychoanalytic experience it's the same with unconscious ideas. So, in accordance with the um with that is the Freudian idea that say in phobia, just to keep going with a little hands thing, but it's also true with other kinds of symptom formation, the triggering objects of a phobia um move further and further away from the central unacceptable idea so if you have say the idea of the angry punitive father, then that might become a horse with a noseband and and so on, or just um well, another thing, I never believed it existed until I'd been working for quite a while, but with button phobia, it's just, it's the most amazing thing. But um. Y- with that one, I'd heard before that, that very often, you know, buttons are situated on the threshold between the body and the, the sort of nakedness and the clothed or something as the kind of access point. And that very often people with button phobias would, would focus on that and that would be the thing that they would produce in the end. And once they stopped being frightened of buttons, the, the buttons would very often become a fetish object and they wouldn't be able to get excitement without a button to hand. <laughs> and, and I just found it the weirdest idea. I think I learned about it when I was a trainee. And then, um, a case of appeared in my consulting room and and followed exactly (laughs) that trajectory it's fantastic but um but when you start to look into other people's button phobias they they point to all sorts of different causes so people who've been told oh you mustn't swallow a button keep away, keep the children away from the buttons etc or there was one guy who had a jar of buttons fall on his head (laughs) but there are all these different associations to the buttons with pain or choking or, or sexy dads um So this this sort of meaning can slip from one object to another in the same way that, you know, blue might just as well be called yellow or a man with a moustache might just as well uh, be signified by a horse wearing a bridle. But um, in the unconscious, you're always led back to a master signifier. So it might slip away to the button or to the bridle or whatever, but when you start following it back, you get to the dad or the mum or some kind of initiating Point. Um, so the master signifier is where the chain of association stops. So so you can maybe see that that's totally different from saying that the unconscious is structured by a language. It's saying that the unconscious is structured according to the same sort of logic as a language. And Freud also talks near the end of the essay um he refers to the unconscious being highly organised, and that's an idea that becomes especially important for Lacan. So for Freud, the unconscious isn't a big mess, it's a system, and the reason that things in it have to be kept away from consciousness is that they're deemed too unsettling to the person's good image of themselves, or whatever, Uh, they're unbearable, not because they're too formless or too qualitatively different to conscious ideas for the two systems to understand one another. So they understand each other very well, which is why, as as Salman was saying, why they're able to keep uh, trying to reach mutually agreeable compromises. <laughs> so he t- it, Freud talks a lot about the amount of exchange between the unconscious and conscious via the preconscious, and also the fact that there might be times where th- where the systems don't have to compromise very much at all. So a repressed wish suddenly becomes perfectly allowed if it finds its way to align itself with something egocentric. So you know whatever that would be your repressed anger at your Mum or your partner suddenly finds a cause, an external cause, which you think completely justifies it, and then whoa, you can just go to town and really hate them. Um, so, last yeah, to talk a little bit more about. about the history of the the difficulty around that phrase and about Lacan. But in the 50s, Lacan was facing all all sorts of problems with certain of his colleagues, especially over this question of training analysts and the acceptability of variable-length sessions. Um, And you know he didn't help himself at all by buying a massive country house (laughs) because he'd worked out how he could see far more patients in a far... You know, if you could see three in an hour rather than one in an hour, then you could get rich. So his big... um, you know theoretical breakthrough or oh, variable length sessions are good because of this this and this is also but you know he's also got a country house there simultaneously <laughs> and so it made people really question you know what kind of theoretical breakthrough is that um so but in so responding so huge ruptures in the french analytic world and and so he responds to this kind of big breakdown excommunication etc with this uh thing called the rome discourse which is a paper that he gave where he argues for what he calls a return to freud so he gets worked up about all the sorts of things he sees going on as going on in the analytic world and he's it's a really kind of impassioned critique because he's been told that what he's doing is wrong um and it's, it's kind of I don't know messing with psychoanalytic legacy. So so his return to Freud is a kind of cheeky response to that. Uh, cheeky is a kind word for it. But um, he basically he tries to explain why it's not him who's wrong, it's everyone else and it has all I don't know if you've read it but it has all these really unfair attacks on people like Ernst Kris etc where he totally misrepresents their work and attacks them on the grounds of his misrepresentation. But Alongside that, there are all these other really, very interesting ideas, I think. but um, So there are all these problems that, according to Lacan, are surfacing in psychoanalysis since the death of Freud. So there's the idea of a cure that dams up the unconscious, which he sees as um, that's what the ego psychologists are putting forward, because they, you know they're basing a lot of their thinking about cure on this essay, The, the Ego and the Id. Um, and, and Lacan's much more in love with the uh, earlier, uh, sort of more radical, you know, we're bringing the plague type Freud <laughs> rather than the one who says, oh, you know, you get your ego to sort things out and you'll be a lot more comfortable. Um, then there's also this mode of interpreting that privileges actions over speech as if it's only through those that a person give them, gives themselves away. So this other mode of interpreting, you know, you're late because you're angry or whatever it would be that um, the object relation schools were developing. And and also the Jungian idea that you can have a broadly applicable key to unconscious symbols. Um, and then on top of all those problems, you've got the growing familiarity with Freudian concepts. So so everybody who turns up for analysis knows about the Oedip, Oedipus complex. So if you say, oh, you're in love with your dad, they'll go, yeah, that's what you all say. They won't go, oh, my goodness, well, I never thought of that. Um, so you can't take, or, or things like the anal character type or whatever, you can't take anyone by surprise anymore because everyone's so forewarned against psychoanalytic theory. So, so the things that, that Lacan argues for in that very... Um, his cheeky paper aim at being some kind of antidote to, to all of those problems he sees in the post-Freudian world. So his return to Freud centres on a return to the idea of the Freudian unconscious and particularly the way that's conceptualised in the 1915 essay. He, you know, would practically write off the ego and the id as an awful piece of, I, I don't know, sort of claptrap. So in other words, he's he's arguing for an unconscious that's constantly pushed to invent its own language or its means of articulating itself. So an unconscious that replaces a father with a noseband or a button or whatever because that's the best means it can find at the time. And so that would be an unconscious that's totally different in each person. So so what would that mean for clinical practice? Am I running out of time? You stop me yes, half a minute. two minutes. Oh yeah, two. That's so good. Okay. Um, so for clinical practice, well, I don't know how would that. Manifest itself. Um, so it would be just that you'd have to listen out for the particularities of the patient's language. You'd have to let your patients make their own associations and not put words into their mouths. You'd have to take seriously their free associations and never imagine that you know already, you know what their dreams, what their actions mean according to some preformed ideas that you've. I don't know, read in a book or heard from a colleague. So you're trying to hear all those odd connections and unlikely rhymes and overlaps. So in other words, you're looking out for signs of this language-like unconscious echoing through the person's speech. Yeah, that's it.
3: Um,
1: we'll try and keep Salmon in mind as well, and kind of evoke his presence here, and, and in, in terms of discussion. Um, and I just perhaps thought, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Mark would want to say. I was, I was thinking about two particular things. One. When Salman talked about the way that unconscious processes and characteristics can be brought into consciousness and vice versa, which seemed to kind of tie in with some of the things you were saying. And then, and then what Nushka's saying about the role of language and thing presentations and how that figures within the kind of schema that you were talking about earlier. I don't, I mean, would you be able to say a few words about
4: that? Uh, Uh, Well, well, I'm I'm happy to uh, say that uh, certainly I agree that um i mean it's a matter of common observation that you can have conscious states which function according to the rules of uh, the 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 rules that normally govern what freud called the unconscious and the example that he speaks of is the is the obvious one you know, patients who are in a psychotic state of mind who are thinking in a very concrete way who are utterly out of touch with reality but they're not unconscious you know the the hallucination by definition is conscious what they're seeing isn't there but they're conscious of it so, the relations between the things that they imagine follow the rules of primary process they um, the, the contradictions all over the place etc So um, that's, I don't think, at all controversial. I don't see how anyone could deny it. Um, I mean, dreams are another example of when our consciousness is functioning according to the rules that normally uh, govern unconscious uh, processes. Uh, I I think that that's partly what led, that sort of thing, is what led Freud to abandon his first topographical model, his idea that you can... Organize the, that the basic structure of the mind revolves around these layers of conscious, pre-conscious, unconscious is patently not correct. And uh, that was what led him on to his, to his second topography where he tried to, um, find deeper laws, um, which boil down to reality principle versus uh, p- pleasure principle, primary versus secondary. Principle. These things transcend uh, whether or not you're conscious or unconscious. Um, so uh, the the second um, the point that Ivan asked me about, um, I don't. I mean, I, I must say I, I, it's sort of embarrassing how little uh, um, I know about so much. So I, and I, 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 I read Freud. And I thought, that's what psychoanalysis is. And then I, and I was a, you know, a neuropsychologist. I didn't know anything else about psychoanalysis. I read Freud. I thought, great, that's what's missing in neuropsychology. So I came here and I trained as a psychoanalyst thinking I would train in this thing called Freud. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, what happened was the very first seminars I went to, I couldn't understand a word. I didn't know what they were talking about. I remember vividly with the one uh, s- seminar leader saying, this patient's um, this patient's sadism is repressed in her objects. And I thought, what the fuck is that? Huh? <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, I trained for, I, I don't know, six or seven or eight or nine years. And um, eventually I understood Klein, you know, because I, I, I didn't know that that's what they teach you here. I don't mean in this building. I mean, you know, I, I, this was in New Cavendish Street. And then, you know, I was so I was a Freudian who understood Klein. I don't understand anything else much about psychoanalysis. Lacan, I, they didn't teach me anything, um, and so I just sat there learning. Uh, and I'm therefore not qualified to comment.
2: <laughs> I wondered
0: what. But, what are
1: the, oh. the, sorry, the only reason I asked is because I did earwig at a conversation we were having during the lunch break where the term thing representations did
4: cross your lips. So I wondered how that figured... You know, sorry. Yeah. That. I mean, sorry. That's a, a very basic Freudian idea that I do understand what Freud meant by that. Um, you know, the, the way I understand that is... Uh, I mean, let me go back to my own presentation earlier. I, I think that when Freud spoke of consciousness... Which was a hundred years ago. You know, he didn't speak. He didn't differentiate between different grades of consciousness as we do nowadays. Commonly in cognitive science, we speak of different, you know, access consciousness, phenomenal consciousness, declarative consciousness, higher order thought, uh, you know, blah blah blah. blah. And the 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 primary and secondary or or or, or phenomenal as opposed to reflective consciousness. That distinction is really important in Freud, and I think that it coincides with what he called uh, thing presentations and word presentations. I think that the, the, there's a kind of a concrete, second-person, brute, raw experience kind of consciousness of things, um, which is different in kind and different in what you can do with it mentally from the thinking about that kind of it's a feeling about that, me, you, as opposed to looking at the thing reflectively and seeing I am thinking this about her and she's thinking that about me and being able to see yourself as an object like other objects requires you to abstract yourself from the immediate um, uh, crude relationship with the thing so i think that that kind of con- that, that that sort of pr- a, a, a primary consciousness that kind of phenomenal just having a feeling in relation to an object is the kind of cognition that freud speaks of uh, under the heading of thing presentations and please note linking to your first point, it doesn't necessarily imply an unconscious type of cognition. You know, you can be perfectly conscious of that kind of concrete thinking, as I was saying, uh, in relation to your first point. I think that what Freud aspired to in, in our treatment, in the, the talking cure, was that, s- that secondary reflexive kind of consciousness where you can think about what you're thinking. And that, of course, requires some kind of abstract system and a symbolic system. And it doesn't have to only be language. It is like a language, anything like a language. And that I also know from my other field. You know, language evolved out of uh, a capacity for re-representation in, in prefront with prefrontal development. Language was one such system. It's not by any means the only way in which we can think about our thoughts. But I think that that's the essential distinction.
2: I wondered, can I respond a little bit? I don't know, but... um... Because cause sometimes, like I was saying, that some of those distinctions look really, really nitpicky. It's like, why are you even bothering to talk about that when there are people coming to you who are going to jump out of a window next week and they want you to help them not do that? I mean, it's you know, it's sort of ridiculous to be having these really small theoretical arguments. But I was thinking about because the, the, the way you presented this sort of it's kind of the idea of the drives harnessed to unconscious representations coming into conflict conflict with the reality principle was such a brilliant like really beautiful really precise description of sort of what's going what the you know what's going on with the mind or what the person might bring to you like what's the work you're going to have to do well you're going to have to work on that but if you stop there there's the risk that whoever you know uh government policy makers go ah and so this is the thing that's happening here they've put CBT clinics in job centres because they think that the people need to be cured of the fact that they're crap at getting a job and so you get some poor therapists (laughs) trying to practice with people and the only therapy they can offer is therapy that teaches the person that they better go and apply for jobs and never to put in question whether it's good to have a job whether the whole system is good whether they want to buy into it whether they want to opt out of it it's just like pull your socks up and so so with with this sort of thing even though it's all naughty and kind of boring at least the the sort of outcome of it is that it's going to be weird whatever the person's going to come up against in psychoanalysis is going to be really particular to them it's going to be really really strange and then you decide what you do but you're definitely not just um trying to get them in line with the reality principle that's like that sort of mind control that's zombie training (laughs) <laughs> so I suppose that's what I like about the Lacanian thing, that you've got these beautiful formulations like this one that you made, but then there's a kind of ethics around it, because if you've got that, that's good. But if someone says, OK, so we've got to get everyone in line with the reality principle so they all go to work, they don't claim benefits and they don't get sick, then you've got a horrible society. <laughs> are
1: you are saying that there's something about that model which is which precludes the individual, then, or the,
2: Well, if you say that the job of psychoanalysts is to get people in line with a kind of external reality principle, to say that, you know, if you, if you want that, then that's maladaptive and that's wrong, so you've got to want this because this is what's on offer that's a crap therapy. It's, you know, so, so it's got to be, it's got to leave them the option to want something that they can't have and to suffer the frustration to, to adapt to something down the middle that they might be able to get, they might be able to play around the idea of what they can try to get. But but never, it's got to be anti-normative. Uh, we're very much in line with early Freud and not in line with the ego and the ed, ego psychology type stuff, which, yeah.
3: Yeah, I was just going to really agree with that. I think that's really interesting because in society there's so much pressure on things becoming pragmatic now so you know it becomes a matter of class often and you know all all that although affording therapy and analysis can sometimes be expensive it might not be available to everybody it's still got to remain an, an ambitious academic discipline that's not dragged down by, you know, social mechanisms. Yeah, reducing it. Because, yeah. because then it, and it's something people can learn from as well and use some yeah. of the findings in their own life in things like writing, creativity, even if they're not in therapy. Oh. So I think it's so important, like you say, that it's not kind of, you know, reduced yeah. to, you know, in, in that sense. Oh. It doesn't become overreductive. Yeah. So good. Thank you. <laughs>
2: so.
5: Hello. Yeah. Um, two questions about schizophrenic discourse. Mm. Um, in 1914, one year earlier, Lacan, re- oh, sorry, Freud, redefined the psychotic types, saying that it's, there's a paraphrenia, which has mm. two subtypes, paranoia and paraphrenia proper, mm. whereas in 1911 he had spoken about paranoia and dementia praecox. Mm. So I was wondering why he returns to the term schizophrenia in 1915. And does he refer to paraphrenia proper, or the more general term that includes both psychotic types? And the second one, I, if oh, I'm to mis- ask me
2: another one on top of that, because that will just go. Uh,
5: <laughs> gonna, no. um, yeah, I-, I think somewhere related. in the end of the same paper, like uh, once more, Freud says that we might have to rethink repression concerning the psychotics discourse. Do you think you can read foreclosure there, or is
2: it? Oh uh, yeah that's such a good question. Yeah exactly because if if repression is a kind of it's a, almost a milder thing where the thing comes back but at least you you sort of it comes back from something that's got something to do with you whereas with foreclosure it seems to have nothing to do with you anymore it comes from the outside it's an alien it's a voice that you hear it's something else is that but but I wondered with the first question I I don't know because I can't answer uh, for Freud and I really haven't followed the logic of that through, but he does speak a lot about his Viennese sloppiness. And so sometimes when there are the little differences between terminology from this paper to that one, sometimes it means everything and sometimes it's a red herring, isn't it? And it's really, <laughs> so in that case, I, I don't know which it is. Yeah.
6: Could I ask something about observation of, of the unconscious? You know, mm. you mentioned uh, reversal of, of rules, of, you know, unconscious uh, to conscious and vice versa. Mm. And, of course, uh, when speaking about that, uh, people have mentioned uh, psychotic states as one example. But I wonder, you know, uh, and, of course, I also realize that there is obviously some sort of ethical implication in studying people with psychosis uh, psychoanalytically as well as infant observation as well, mm. you know. But I wonder... If people have actually done this, or should it be done, you know, these phenomena should be observed in a much larger population, which is rapidly expanding, which is dementing population. Gradual oh, yeah. process of dementia, like for example, Sir Terry yeah. Pratchett had.
2: Yeah, no, that's super interesting because I suppose, I mean, in a way, that psychoanalysis has been used kind of as a treatment, pretty much. And so it has, and there's been the question of whether it can be used as a treatment for psychotics, because obviously you can't cure psychosis with it. But maybe it's important to listen to psychotic people and take their speech seriously, and you know, see see that there's a logic to it and speak about that logic, etc. But maybe, maybe with dementia, the idea of psychoanalysis being a cure for Dementia is so far off the range that it hasn't been <laughs> sort of even thought of, which has taken away the, the research element, which is, well, what do demented people say and, and what meaning could be ascribed to it and should we listen to the logic, etc. But yeah, it's a super interesting thing I, to... I suppose I ought to yeah. say that we did have a conference did on... Did you? Uh, excellent, yeah. I don't
1: know if
6: Amelia wants to say just, a Yeah. No, of sorry, words. I just wanted to say that well, dementing people are actually, uh, you know, they are having actually great struggle in which it's very difficult for them to adapt with uh, reality testing and it's actually creating large difficulties for them and their families
2: Yeah, yeah exactly and all the time you see an analysis because often if you've got a demented parent or a demented partner then, then you come to analysis and speak about it but the th- if you take the, the speech of the hospitalised person seriously then very often they really are trying to say something that they really want to get a response to and it can be very very difficult for them to get nurses or doctors or anybody to, to listen to that speech and sometimes it's only the family who are prepared to, to hear it and do something.
1: About it, yeah. Amelia, just notice in me.
5: It's interesting. We're talking about language, mm. but it's not the only way to communicate. As mm. in, Sam play art, yeah. etc. Yeah. Um, and so much is put on the word. Sometimes a word can be repeated five times. Mm. maybe it's about listening on all levels rather than, as you say, reducing to a type
2: yeah,
5: which is um often comes with the job center, as you say, with the mm. counseling going on there. there's very much a script to fit into, yeah where possibly looking at possibly why they're in that situation mm. etc yeah
2: exactly
5: um, not always through speech it can be through so many other forms
2: yeah exactly and even the relation of speech to stuff that isn't spoken is so weird like this thing you know where the id was there the ego shall be this idea of cure it's, well maybe it can't really be like that you're never going to get the job done but then you hear all these, you see all these weird things in clinical practice well. where the person hasn't named it or hasn't said it but they get a really um you know the symptoms affected or their suffering reduces or whatever and they don't know why they're very pleased that it has, but they haven't got really anything to say about it. It's not because now I know this or now I understand this. It's just like something's a bit different.
5: Well, it brings to mind the, um, the blackheads. Yeah. <laughs> um, because what we forget is actually the hands. Yeah. Occupy the hands. Mm. And this isn't be, You know, that could be more, shall we say, healing to the psyche yeah. rather than the mind. Yeah, mm. what well, the
2: activity is. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Hello. Uh,
7: I have uh, some thoughts or doubts uh, mm-hmm. in relation to the options we have in this uh, very depressing world. <laughs> again. Yeah. Uh, it seems that the only uh, two choices that we have mm-hmm. are either counseling for people because the obstacles are everywhere mm-hmm. and we need to pass over these obstacles mm-hmm. or the religion because the ego can't regulate itself through the confession, for right. instance. Yeah. So we've got these two options, mm. and yet psychology is really developing. We mm. are entering all sorts of uh, <laughs> the darkest of corners of our mind, mm. and yet we are left with only two options. And option one is not accessible to everybody. I am concerned in the long run what we are left with.
2: Yeah, and I suppose there's it's, the it's a hypothetical well. question, but yeah, uh, yeah, no. I am concerned
7: because there is rapidity. In the way that psychology is developing treatments, it is uh, psychoanalysis, yeah. different branches of psychology, uh, uh, different methods. Everything is developing, yeah. and uh, uh, yet we don't have any other options. And there is a growing need for people mm-hmm. to overcome these everyday obstacles, obstacles, b- b- obstacles, uh, which are getting bigger and bigger. Not only in numbers, but on, on, in they the understanding for some because yeah. everyday life becomes so difficult yeah, exactly. and uh, once you have the obstacle you can't pass that obstacle you need to treat yourself and I think that's where all these models of classes, societies are already deeply rooted almost like Genetically modified things yeah it's, so, it's such
2: a difficult <laughs> so, thing I know because I suppose maybe there are much I more around. So yeah it's just <laughs> no it 's super difficult. interesting, yeah, exactly because it, it borders on the political as yeah. well, because I suppose it 's not just that you cure the individual it 's yeah. Exactly, like Jeremy Corbyn, is he going to cure us or not? (laughs) You know, and is is that why people, what people are betting on when they vote for him, that that you know there can be a broader social cure, that it has to be an individual cure? Is it a cure around knowledge? Is it a cure around faith? You know, what makes you feel better? Is it better to think you're just going to go to heaven, so it doesn't matter how crap your life is? Is it better to try to make your life good? (laughs) That's all all the stuff. I guess it's all the old stuff. I mean, it's it's not new in a way. It's just that the twists. Right.
1: Yes. That does tie in a little bit with with, um, David Tuckett's whole idea about conviction narratives, Mm. doesn't it? I mean, mean, I'm surprised he didn't mention the concept of wish-fulfillment because Mm. that seemed to be implied in that. But, the, you know, as I mentioned to you before, one of the kind of connections and with Marx's paper as well, I thought, with with a Lacanian view, was the idea that there seemed to be in both papers that the ego is a kind of fiction. And mm. uh, I don't know if you, if that was the implication, but but, but the, it was, you know, Freud uses the phrase shreds and patches. We kind of make up our picture of, you know, you see what you want to see, and you make up your picture of reality by sort of stitching bits together, and it's a kind of fiction, you know, and that, that seems to be, crucial to a Lacanian view you know which which is a sort of link I think
2: yeah. But, yeah yeah exactly And the question of what I don't know with the ego psychology thing and Lacan's big objection to it is to say that you could just make yourself really good and ego <laughs> be a strong, yeah exactly than this. yeah and then you will yeah. be all right and and so yeah it's it's to work in the opposite direction and say well, maybe give it up see
4: yeah well if one thing I've learnt about Lacanian psychology from you if if the Lacanian school thinks that the ego and the id is synonymous with ego psychology, then that's Well no,
2: yeah. not exactly no of ego course psychology yeah. is an
4: aberration of yeah, them. And the, ego I know. And the id is a br- yeah. brilliant paper. No, I know, and it's, and it's got so much yeah. in it. Yeah,
2: it's just that those moments when it says maybe cure can be this, if they get latched onto and that's all cure can be, that's that's a big loss. And <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: Uh, as Freud's representative, mm. I'll agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Any
1: more questions? There, there, there were, do I another question to Mark? Mm. Just, yeah. just um, because you're talking about um different forms of, of, uh, Different kinds of pleasure and different kinds of anxiety and this kind of thing. I just wonder. I mean, the paper that came to mind, very, sh- very short, kind of quirky paper that Freud wrote in 1931, the types, you know, where he's basically saying, you know, there are different kinds of pleasure. If you picture the you know the mental is the, the structural theory ego, it's super ego and then think where the libido is most predominant so there'd be a pleasure associated with super egoic things, the pleasure, an ego type of pleasure and an id type of pleasure and similarly different kinds of anxiety as well related to, the, to that structural theory and I just wonder whether any of that would come into what it was you were saying let's go
4: I'm I'm not sure that I completely get what what you're after. Uh, I'll say one thing, which may just be a free association in relation to what you're actually asking about, which is that you know Freud, in relation to drives, he said that they have a a source, an aim, and an object, Um, and um, the what you're referring to now in terms of libidinal types. Uh, the, 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 the thing that uh, w- w- has always struck me uh, about Freud, and which links back to what I was saying earlier, is that he seemed to think, and didn't seem to think, he frankly said, that the source of the different component libidinal drives are the erogenous zones. So, you know, the, the source of, of, of anal libido is the a, mucous membranes of the anus and the source of oral libido, you know, etc. And, and th- that's very odd, um, because uh, clearly the source of our desire is not the outer surface of our body. These are triggers. Uh, these are things which evoke the desire. The desire comes from within. And, uh, it's an, in, it's an endogenous uh, need giving rise to desire. And, um, that you know, as we've understood, more about you know the, the, the hormonal and other neurochemistries of of, of, of what, what Freud called libido. So it's again patently obvious that these things come from what I call the internal body, uh, what Freud uh, hypo- uh, conceptualized under it. id. Now there can't be these external bodily surface objects in the id. So there's another, it just goes back to the contradiction I was referring to earlier. I think that these are the first objects of our desire, the, the mouth and our conception of the mouth in relation to the breast and the sort of feelings that the particular type of pleasure that that evokes is a first object with a name attached to it is certainly not a source. And then, likewise, the, the pleasures that we get from c- control of the sphincter and, you know, pleasures that we get from the manipulation of our genitals and so on. These are objects we find in the world. The fact that they are on our own bodies is synonymous with the, the narcissistic sort of origins of, 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 uh, of what we come to love in the world. So I don't know if that relates to what you're saying, but I, th- you know, these different types of libidinal pleasure and the, and the, and the character types that go with that, have everything, I think, to do with the objects of our desire rather than with the sources.
1: saying that in this particular paper he, he, he undermines that expectation. So basically you'd think he'd be talking about libidinal types being all anal phallic and so on. But then he completely changes that and says the libidinal types are related to where the libido is in relation to the parts of the mental apparatus. So he kind of t- t- completely changes it and starts thinking about it in relation to ego and superego rather than, you know, so it's a kind of interesting difference to what, you know, to the character types idea, which, sure. which you know, but, and one more question,
2: I think.
3: I was just going to ask, I'm
2: not an analyst, so I do get confused, but is there naming the object of desire? Not necessary if it comes from some other place. Did that make sense? Yeah, it did. From what? From what yeah. Market just said. But are you talking about in terms of how whether you can expect to get satisfaction if you can't name it? That you might be able. You well, might not know anything. Is of, placed. Yeah. So you your, might not know anything about it, but you might be able to get weird forms of satisfaction, which is you know supposedly what symptoms are sure. or whatever that you get the satisfaction in another way. But in
7: terms of then
2: the analysis mm. if you can't name the object if it's pre if it comes from some other place if it's mm. more about this this internal thing I'm not quite sure I understand it mm. that drives you to desire the object or want something or have a relationship with the object mm. is it unnecessary then to have the word that's what I'm getting oh yeah the well, language I say... for the object yeah I... so it's then it's actually talking about something pre I don't know if this is a good answer to your question, but in the Three Essays on Sexuality, Freud talks about these three possibilities. So you've got, you know, the unconscious drives, you've got the stuff that's very difficult to deal with that might present itself in all sorts of different ways. And so, so he talks about the neurotic, the artist, and the pervert who each, each got different strategies. So the artist sublimates, and so they don't know what it is that's pushing them to try and get this thing. They don't know what the thing is, but, you know, they'll, they'll make something, they'll do something, it'll be weird, and that's one way. The pervert will just go straight. After it, whatever it is, they know it, and they'll act it out. And then neurotic will get ill, or get a phobia, or get something. But he says that, that everybody's usually combining all three. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 So, so your character or your way of being the world is is formulated out of a funny, you know, pretty haphazard, concocted construction of those three attempts to get satisfaction. <laughs> three, well. three modes
1: our way of being in the world has now come to the tea break. so, <laughs> so we all need a cup now so if, if, you, just, if you just thank the sleep and starved